0: On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast, we are talking about housing in Ontario. 1.5 million new homes need to be built, according to a report. Is that even possible? Well, we're going to try and find that out. We're also going to be discussing Afghanistan. It's a year since the Taliban seized power, and there were always concerns about what might happen, but it seems that all those concerns have lived up to their fears and more. We will talk with a retired Lieutenant General about that have you ever thought about homesteading do you even know what homesteading is well we're going to explain to you we're going to be talking with someone who is paddleboarding across the fifth of the great lakes he's already done four one more to go we'll be chatting with him and we've got mercedes stevenson with a really interesting and disturbing story that you are going to want to hear Stick around.
1: This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML.
0: We heard a lot of talk about housing, and each of the parties vowed that things would be done to deal with the housing issue. Well, something's been done with some of the housing issue. We were talking about it earlier in the show. Prices have tumbled right now, mostly due to interest rates. The housing market has cooled off. That hasn't, though, resolved all of the needed spaces for everybody that we're going to have to find. And how many spaces are we going to need? How many housing units in Ontario do we need? Well, according to the Smart Prosperity Institute, Ontario needs to build, ready for this, 1.5 million homes to meet the demand. 1.5 million homes it is a staggering number. I want to bring in Dr. Mike Moffat. He is the senior director at the Smart Prosperity Institute. He's an assistant professor also in business economics and public policy group at the I, uh, Ivy Business School at Western University. Thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it.
2: Oh, thank you for having me. As I say,
0: 1.5 million homes is an unfathomable number. It really is. It's It's staggering.
2: Yeah, it absolutely is. Uh, We've seen this number thrown around from politicians. The federal government says that we need to double housing completions. And that actually gets you to about 1.5 million uh, over the next 10 years, because we did about three quarters of a million the previous 10 years so we wanted to see you know if this massive massive number is has any sort of basis in reality on needs so we looked at population growth we looked at housing supply provinces or housing supply in provinces that don't have big shortages so basically everyone except ontario and bc and sure enough if we want to have a market that looks like the rest of canada We're basically going to need 1.5 million homes in the next 10 years to get there.
0: Okay. So what does that mean? Because here's the thing. We, everybody is fighting about what all these things we here in Hamilton, we have a fight about the urban boundary expansion, no more sprawl. We can't have any more land to build homes. So that means I guess apartments or they're talking about more density, but not everybody loves those ideas either. How do you do this?
2: Yeah and that's that's going to be the the big challenge and and we're going to need some of everything. Uh you know we are going to need to build up sometimes and we'll have to build out uh sometimes. I think a lot, you know, and I think we need to find creative solutions. So, you know, one area that I think is ripe for this is finding more housing that's seniors friendly. And I'll use my parents as an example. They're in their mid 70s. They live in London, Ontario, uh, four bedroom house in the suburbs that they only use about 10 percent of, you know, their kids are uh, grown up and, and out of the house. They keep threatening to move, but they've never actually done it because they can't find a smaller unit that meets their needs. So if we can find ways to create more sort of seniors friendly housing, we can unlock those houses in the suburbs that are that you're absolutely right are quite popular. So it's looking at the system as a whole and trying to figure out these, these bottlenecks and better use the housing supply we have as well as creating new supply.
0: I, I, this is going to sound very uh, gruesome or I don't know, uh, dark, but we do have a, a significantly aging population. We hear that all the time when people are talking about the healthcare industry, about what are we going to do with all these seniors now? Well, if we have a majority or a huge chunk of our population who are senior, they are going to pass away at some point. And if they're all in their homes, is that not someday in five or 10 years going to open up a huge number of homes back onto the market?
2: yeah so we absolutely account for that so we look at, at population aging so this the term they use is generational turnover which is a you know sort of a politically correct genteel. Version of, yeah. yeah a genteel version of what you're describing so so absolutely that that does happen you start to see that in the data but it's more sort of a 20 and and 30 year uh from now kind of phenomenon i mean the the biggest uh population cohort is the baby boomers in the top end of those they're about 75 and on you know the other side, they're about 55. So that does happen over time, but it's probably not a next 10 years type of phenomenon.
0: Okay. So, d- and even when that happens, what are we seeing? Now, I know that now we've just been through a bizarre housing bubble that yeah. seems to have cooled off, but are, when people's parents passed away, were they putting the house up for sale or were they saying, I can't afford to buy a house. I'm just going to move in.
2: Yeah, well, absolutely. And we see a lot of that right now where uh, grandparents are uh giving you know passing away or or moving into a long-term care facility and giving that home to their kids or grandkids so a lot of these homes aren't getting on the market so much as just being passed down to generations which is great if you're uh you know you've got a grandparents with it with a nice home but if you're a new canadian or you know moving to ontario from a different province you don't necessarily have that option so that creates sort of a level of inequality with. Where, you know, housing is becoming basically this, uh, you know, this kind of heirloom rather than uh, somewhere that, you know, anybody can, can buy and afford.
0: we just got time for one more, but you, you said right at the beginning, you said we're going to need a little of all of it. You were talking about density and apartment buildings or condos and, and growing outwards. What happens in, and here in Hamilton? Again, they have said absolutely not to the growing outwards. Can it be done if you eliminate one of those three options?
2: Well, essentially what, what happens, and we've seen this in the Hamilton area, is that, that, that growing outward occurs, it just ends up in, in places like Thorold and, and other parts of uh, Niagara, the Niagara region. So uh, so we need to be careful when we have anti-sprawl properties uh, policies that we're not making the problem worse. Our report finds that Hamilton's going to need about 52,000 homes over the next 10 years. That's a much higher number than in the official plan, so that... That's going to create some some tensions for Hamilton that's going to need to figure out what to do to, to support a growing population.
0: So really, uh, it, boy, it's a head scratcher. It really is when you talk about a 1.5 million and 52,000. Uh, Dr. Mike Moffat from the Smart Prosperity Institute, really appreciate the time today. Thank you for this.
2: Oh, thank you for having me. You're
1: listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
2: This week
0: marks the one-year anniversary since the Taliban seized control of Afghanistan. And I think that it's fair to say that when that happened, many people around the world, most people perhaps around the world, uh, did not have great optimism that things were going to go particularly well. But the uh, the Taliban, if you recall at that time, said, "Oh no no, we're we're going to do things differently. We're changed. We're going to allow women more opportunities, and we're going to do all this." A year later, uh, most of the reports, almost all of the reports that we are reading coming out of Afghanistan, suggest that things are not good. That things have gotten worse. I Want to bring in retired Lieutenant General Steve Bowes from the Canadian Global Affairs Institute to chat about it? Uh, thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. Good morning, Scott. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, When I said a moment ago that most people, when this happened, were not terribly optimistic that things would go well, um, has this then just lived down to every expectation that people have had?
3: I think so. I think for for the people that were informed and following what was going on in Afghanistan, uh, knowing the cast of characters, the leadership that had been leading the insurgency for the last number of years, there was no expectation that they would live up to. what they said that they were going to do. And so the last year has kind of fulfilled uh, the
0: expectations, I think. My one surprise, and maybe I'm just a naive rube for even being surprised by this, is I kind of thought that maybe that suggestion by them that they were going to change, that it would take a little longer than a year for things to completely return to form. I thought maybe the attempt would drag out a little longer than it has.
3: I think once they seized power, the rapidity of it all, um, then you began to see a number of different leaders that were, you know, working in, in, a, in various locations within Afghanistan kind of center in on Kabul for conversations. And I think it just began to crystallize that, uh, you know, they were the Taliban, they are the Taliban, um, and they were, uh, you know, falling back into form, if you will. So, um, I didn't believe that uh, they would uphold, as an example, their commitment to uh, women's education, allowing the girls to go to school. It just wasn't ingrained in their movement. And so what we probably saw was a little bit of information operations on the West there um, to enable, um, uh, you know, forces to leave and, and to manage the situation at the moment.
0: Yeah. And, and to your point, I mean, look, I I think everybody probably felt that way as you did. Uh, There's a piece though, in the national Post today or yesterday, I can't remember. And it's by a woman who was in Afghanistan, sort of charting her diary of what happened in the days following. And she points out from this diary that they took over August, the 15th or 16th, a month later, September the 17th, all those promises about women going to school, they were being sent home and told don't come. So it was, it wasn't even, you know, it wasn't even a right. month before all those promises were abandoned. It took no time at all to revert. Uh, indeed, and
3: and the Taliban are just getting started, so it's uh, it's going to go. Um, it's likely to continue on a downward uh, trajectory from here.
0: The problem with that, and there are so many problems with that, is Russia. As everyone knows, Russia has fought a war with Afghanistan that did not go well. Uh, the West has been involved with Afghanistan, didn't necessarily go particularly well doesn't seem like there's anybody who's going to be lining up to go and try and help and to remove the Taliban again, because this seems like you go into Afghanistan, it's just a quagmire. We're going to leave this one alone.
3: I think you're right. Um, I think some of the uh, big powers, uh, China and Russia, are certainly angling for uh, some of the strategic interests that are in Afghanistan, minerals, copper mines, um, and the like. And so um, you're likely to see this uh, viewed through the prism of a great power competition uh, going forward. There will be local insurgencies. Some of them will gain strength, and then perhaps they will gain favor uh, of uh, other nations to support them. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, we're basically going to see a, a repeat of, of Afghan history that we, we saw um, in the 1990s um, and perhaps a little before and a little bit after. So mm. um, the future doesn't look optimistic by any means.
0: Well, and as I say, the Soviet Union tried it. This The America, U.S. tried it. Maybe it's China, sir. Maybe China wants to take a crack at it and see if they can have any more success. But, uh, well, okay, so if we are looking at this, and, and as you've pointed out, it took a very little time for things to revert back, and and there are some suggestions not just revert back, but because there seems to be no fear of anybody stepping in, not just reverting to form, but the Taliban has even pushed further is there any reason to believe that it won't become more and more and more strict, and life there won't become more and more and more difficult?
3: I think that the conditions will deteriorate such that life will become difficult, um, and it's indeed very possible that um, that the Taliban become a more um, um, strict, vicious you know pick your pick your word force um, you know in the terms of its governance. Um, the fact that Western aid um, and development money is not getting in in the manner in which um, uh, the people have been used to in the past doesn't bode well for the future. So it's unlikely to see um, you know g- positive news in the near term under those conditions.
0: A year ago when this all happened, there was immense criticism of the U.S. government for the manner in which it pulled out and left all kinds of people there. In retrospect, does it look any better or does it look even worse in retrospect the way that that happened?
3: I don't know that it looks worse. Um, And any kind of operation like that is, it's never going to be pretty. Um, So it's easy to uh, point a finger at the U.S. administration. Um, If it was the previous U.S. administration, it would unlikely to have been any different. Um, under that kind of uh, operation, what we didn't see, and we have a bit of a cultural blindness to this, is we didn't see how Afghanistan, uh, Afghan culture between the various tribal uh, entities uh, works behind the scenes. And so the rapidity of the decline of Afghan institutions caught Western leadership by surprise. That was always going to create the chaos that we saw.
0: And, of course, the criticism extended north of the border here because of people not getting here have I don't know that this is your area of expertise but has anything improved as far as trying to get the people that we were promising to help out of there and to give them a chance in freedom
3: yeah what I will say is that I'm not an expert um, but I'm pretty reasonably well informed and um, I've been trying to get a family out for a year part of that Um, somebody that helped and when I've spent two tours almost uh, a little under two years in Afghanistan And on my first tour, he was, uh, this family, uh, this gentleman was uh, instrumental in keeping Canadians alive. And I've been trying to get him out and his family, um, and uh, it's been, you know, exceedingly difficult. Um, You know, we have got some out, but we also don't have the breakdown of the numbers that we uh, patriated to Canada under um, from third countries. And so it probably um, suggests that the number that we actually got out from Afghanistan of the 40,000 that we promised, um, is a much lower percentage coming from Afghanistan and probably a higher percentage coming from other countries that are part of the Afghan diaspora. It is gut-wrenching for anybody that um, spent time in Afghanistan to see uh, what um, they're going
2: through.
0: Yeah, it's 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 about the least pleasant discussion to have right now, this whole thing, because it's yeah. just so darn depressing. Um, but it's the reality right now, and it is uh, what's going on in a part of the world that... Uh that just never seems to get it figured out. Um, retired Lieutenant General Steve Bowes, really appreciate your time today. Thank you for this. Thank you, Tom. Take care now. Have a great day. You as well.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There are times when, you know, it.
0: it there is an appeal to simplifying things, saving money, keeping your life easier, not easier, simpler, more take out all the peripheral stuff and let's worry about the important things let's 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 take away the the chaff and worry about the wheat kind of thing well that that seems to be in some way the concept behind homesteading let's let's again let's simplify let's let's bring it back to where we were a little while ago we can maybe grow our own food or look after what we're doing we don't have to be as reliant on everything that's going on outside and i may be misspeaking, but this is my understanding of homesteading but you know who can tell us Megan Seabrook is a former ontarian she is now an urban homesteader based in newfoundland who is joining us now Megan thanks for the time today
4: good morning thanks for having me
0: so i i'm i'm grasping the concept of homesteading and i i, I mean it's there are times when it sounds really really appealing to again, bring everything back a little bit and and simplify life a little bit. And I don't know if it's more simple now, but explain t- for, for us your version of what homesteading is.
4: So I think you're pretty well right on the money. There's a lot of motivations behind it, but it is a lot more back to simple living. It seems to be the theme of it for a lot of people. Um, a lot of people get into it for different motivations, whether it's environmental reasons, concerns about some of the, unpronounceable ingredients that go into our foods, concerns about the way industrial food processing, the global supply chain at this point. Um, there's, there's a lot of different factors that bring people back to this, which is that maybe, maybe we had something right a little while ago, and it's may, maybe it's worth re-examining that and taking it back into my own hands a bit.
0: Yeah, it, it kind of sounds like you're living Little House on the Rock in Newfoundland. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> something go, like Going that, old school. I
4: can see the largest shopping center in the province from my front yard. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Slightly different from the old, but not, I mean, this is something though, as I say, that it's not just you. I mean, th- th- we're hearing about a lot of people who are saying, I want to do this. I want to not be, maybe another way of saying it, not as reliant on all the other stuff out there that I can make sure that I can look after myself.
4: Absolutely. And I mean, it's been a building thing for, I'd say, the last 10 years or so, but it's been very much accelerated by the events of the last two or three years between the pandemic and then now we're seeing a lot of shortages and crop failures and climate. And it's it's been compounded by global events that seeing this sudden like major resurgence into this almost back to the land movement that harkens back to what was happening in the
0: 70s. So what, for you, if in your example, what does that mean? What, what are you doing as far as, I don't know, you talk about back to the land or cutting out the outside that you don't have to be reliant. What are you doing to, to count as your homesteading?
4: So for me, I, um, I've got kind of an unorthodox way of getting into it. I've been interested in this for 10 years or so, but I'm, i you know, through my 20s, like most people, I didn't have any steady housing arrangement, a lot of roommate situations, moved around every couple of years. And now I'm I'm in a basement apartment, which is not what most people picture when they say homestead. But that's what I have access to. And I do have access to a ER yard here. And I have a good relationship with my landlord here. So I have uh, I started out with just uh, container gardening. I, I used a bunch of Rubbermaid totes with drainage holes poked in them. And from that, it's expanded to garden beds. Um, I I do a lot of indoor growing, uh, microgreens and seed starting because our growing season in Newfoundland is not nearly as long as it is in Ontario. Um, I have chickens this year, uh, vermicompost, which is worm composting, which can be done indoors year-round. And I've been involved in starting a workplace community garden behind the retail store where I work. And I volunteer up at a heritage farm that's running farm incubators and home sitting education classes.
0: As you're describing this, I'm realizing that you're you're clearly offering a distinction between homesteading and being a hermit. And, and I mean, I'm not trying to be totally ridiculous, but the idea that people are stepping away, it's not about just sort of going off and living in the woods by yourself and growing some vegetables and not having to be around people.
4: It isn't. And I think even if you get into it from that angle, you realize very quickly that, well, the mythos of self-sufficiency or like the Walden Ponds isolation Might seem like this attractive thing. There's no, I I, I firmly believe that there's really no way to be truly completely an island. And as you get into homesteading, you realize that um, one of the most valuable things you're going to develop through this is a community. Nobody can do every single thing and produce every single thing for yourself. But if you, for instance, like for, I, I have chickens. But if my neighbor has a beehive, we can do some trading. Um, and same thing, if I, I, I have friends with goats, maybe I can, you know, swap some of my vegetables that I have extras of for some of their goat milk, and so on and so forth. When you pool resources that way, then you only, you, you need a few specialists who do different things. Maybe somebody's particularly good at preserving and somebody's good at soap making. But the community becomes way more valuable, not only for trading actual produce, but for education relying on each other for hey something weird is happening with my livestock have you dealt with this before or even acquiring livestock and resources
1: has
0: this always been kind of your not not exactly this because you're doing it more new now but has this always kind of been your thing or did it take a little convincing because I mean I guarantee you there are people listening who are saying, you know, that sounds really refreshing and there are other people listening going that sounds really like hippy dippy commune living and <laughs> uh, you know and it would depend on your attitude going into it.
4: It very much depends on your attitude and obviously there's people from different perspectives who get into this you do get a lot of the folks who are hyper self-reliant and to me there is some of that as well I do this mostly by myself with the exception of some of the community volunteering work that I do um, and so there's definitely that self-reliance bent on it but even those folks swap and swap information um, It's I think there's as much hippy-dippy as there is just you know good old country folk who, who have always mm. been this way, who are just getting back into it more as things become less available. Um, me, I've always been a little bit on this bent. Um, my interest in homesteading was peaked more than 10 years ago. Uh, I grew up around vegetable gardens and farms and even foraging before it was cool.
1: <laughs> yeah
0: it's a it look it's a it's it's something that it's not just you we're hearing more and more that people are unsurprisingly i think and we got to run unsurprisingly when especially when things are really complicated and when there's stuff going on in the world that really you know is difficult i i I can see the appeal i absolutely can see the appeal and i bet a lot of people listening would say i don't know if i could do it but there's a part of that that sounds really appealing It's, it's it's an interesting idea megan seabrook um homesteader based now in newfoundland really appreciate the time megan thanks for this thank you yeah, that's, uh, would you do it? I don't know. I don't know, but it, it, there, are da- there are days when it sounds very, very appealing.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. In the last election,
0: the provincial election that we had, probably the signature issue that people were most talking about logically because of what we just came through with COVID was healthcare. And now Premier, Premier Doug Ford says that, well, their reforms are coming. For healthcare, we're not sure what yet. There's going to be an announcement coming soon, but there will be reforms. We are working on fixing the healthcare system. What could that possibly look like? Michelle Grigno is a professor in the Department of Economics and the Department of Health, Aging, and Society at the Center for Health Economics and Policy Analysis at McMaster University. He joins us now. Thank you so much for the time. My pleasure. This is. Um, any t- every government, I think, for as long as anyone can remember, has always had health as one of the things they've had to deal with. And uh, has it ever been highly successful, any kind of reform that anyone has tried to do, or is it always just sort of chasing whatever is next?
5: Uh, highly successful, let's say, there, are, there has been some changes that I, I think we can say are welcome. So typically, for instance, what uh, happened in the... Uh, Mid 2000s, when the, um, uh, doctors were, let's say, received a lot of uh, incentives to work more uh, as teams, and also to when the, the way they were paid was uh, was changed. So I think, yeah, there were some positive uh, moves. They usually come with uh, a price tag. <laughs> it's not cheap uh, right. to make changes in the healthcare system. But yeah, the, the, the healthcare system has changed maybe not as dramatically as we would like to see, but yeah, there, there has been some welcome changes. So it, it, it's
0: possible. Yeah. L- let's go Let's go with what you just said there. I wasn't going to get to this yet, but I, I think it's fair. You, it always comes with a price. One of the things that critics will point out about the healthcare system is always the answer seems to be, we just have to spend more. If we just put more public money into healthcare, things will get better. And yet it seems that, spending doesn't necessarily equal better. And yet that always seems to be the fallback position. How do we balance those two things? Uh,
5: Yeah, I think there are two different, two different questions here. The first one is, are we spending too much on our healthcare system? Could, could we make the healthcare system more efficient? And I, I, I think so. I think, yeah, the answer is yes. We could certainly we could spend a little bit less on the healthcare system. The second question is the trend. So, is the healthcare system going to cost more next year than what it costs today? And the answer is yes, as well. So we can say both at the same time, we could say we could spend less one time, but the the, the money we have to spend, the money we have to to put into the healthcare system is going to increase. It is going to grow, and it is going to grow as a share of our national income. We 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 will have to face the fact that we are going to spend more and more of our income, uh, collective income, public and private, onto healthcare, and that there's no real way out of that. And the reason for that is that the productivity gains that you can make in, let's say, uh, building computers or cars, you cannot do the same in healthcare, mm. and so healthcare is going to be more costly. You're in, you're out. A little bit like education.
0: Well, and when you said, you know, could you make it more efficient that costs a little less? Uh, probably somebody could, but money funding is a is a tangible, measurable. And if any government said, oh, you know what, we're going to be really efficient but spend less on healthcare, people would lose their minds. M- m- putting more money in sounds like you're doing something, even if you're not really doing anything.
5: Uh, politically, right, politically, that's the that's. Yeah, no, you're right. That's uh, that's a good point. We, I think that the other thing, of course, is that if we make the healthcare system more efficient, uh, it means that somebody is going to lose some income because the money we spend on healthcare is the the income of uh, providers. So anytime we are more efficient, we <laughs> we make somebody not right. happy in the system. I think that's the that's the main thing. But you're right. You're right. That's also spending is a way to uh, to actually look like uh, doing something.
0: That's right. Who sh- who should be Making changes to the healthcare system because it's always politicians that end up doing it or their staff, and yet you know, should it be them or should it be doctors or? But doctors have a vested interest, so it it becomes very difficult. But who should be the the ones who are driving this?
5: Uh, Well, in Ontario, we we have to recognize that uh, hospitals very often are calling the shots. They are big they are rich and they are powerful so I think when we say the politicians are making those decisions to some extent they that, that's that's a good thing about the healthcare system which is that it's uh, the governance is shared between uh, politicians we, which you know to some extent that's us uh, taxpayers we delegate our uh, authority to to politicians but it's shared with uh, colleges. It's shared with associations. Uh, the hospital association is a powerful actor in the, the healthcare system. So uh, I, I wouldn't say that politicians call all the shots in the healthcare system. They always have to. Um, they ha- always have to, uh, let's say, uh, reach an agreement with uh, quite powerful actors in the system. And so, and which is again, I think that's a very good thing. So. It, it may be sometimes disappointing. We you, you may feel that things are not moving uh, as quickly as they should because you have to have all these uh, uh, stakeholders uh, around the table to to agree but it's it's a good thing because of course as you said uh while well, politicians uh, they represent mostly taxpayers but we also want to have uh some clinical perspective on any reform of the healthcare system so it's a good it, it, it is a good thing it can be sometimes frustrating but i think in uh, at the end of the day it's a good thing
0: I, i'm going to ask you something and we only have a minute left here and i know there's no way you can answer this in the time i allow so i apologize but one of the issues that is being talked about a lot now is privatization should there be any kind of privatization and for some people that's sacrilegious and should not even be discussed but at this point should anything be discounted should anything be off the table to begin with or should we be considering everything and then start weeding out what won't work yeah as you said
5: it's hard to answer the question because we don't even know what privatization means so our healthcare system is private i mean the doctors are not uh, civil servants and uh, and hospitals are not owned by the, the government so we have a private delivery what we have is public uh, funding or public uh, financing. The, the the money is public for, well, I mean, not everything, but for hospitals and doctors. So uh, would it help to allow people, some people, to do what we call parallel finance, so that people who have private money to pay uh, to buy the services of some doctors or some hospital stays? In the current state of uh, the healthcare system in Ontario, I think that would be a terrible idea. Uh, And it's not ideological. It's simply that uh, privatization can work well or allowing people to pay privately can work well if you have a a huge amount of doctors or nurses uh, who who are idle because they cannot, they are not paid because there is not enough money in the system. But that's not our problem now. Our problem is that we don't have, we simply don't have the the boots on the ground. We don't have Mm -hmm. doctors. It's not true that doc- there are some doctors here in Ontario who are not working or some nurses who are not working enough. I think they are, that's the opposite. They are working like crazy. And so what would that money do? Private money would simply take some... Public doctors out of the system, the public system, or public nurses out of the public system, and that would make things even worse in the public system. So, I, and again, it's not ideological, but I think for now that I, that's a dead end. I don't I don't see the point. It's uh,
0: it's one of those discussions that uh, boy, it's uh, we could we could talk about this for hours. Uh, alas, we don't have that time this morning. Uh, Michelle Grignot, professor in the Department of Economics and the Department of Health, Aging, and Society at McMaster, really appreciate the time today. Thank you. My great pleasure. Have
1: a good day. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There is
0: um, one person on this planet, I believe, who can lay claim to my next guest's claim to fame, one of his claims to fame, and that is um, later this month, he will become the first person to paddleboard across all five great lakes which is a a remarkable achievement and uh, his name is mike shorman he joins us now and mike i i don't know if you and i talked one or two great lakes ago but it's 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 amazing what you're doing congratulations
6: thanks scott thank you
0: this um i think i asked you this same thing last time but uh, it seems like an appropriate question again because you just was it just was it superior
6: you just did I just, uh, Lake Michigan was last. Michigan, I, yeah, it was. Um, it, took, it was 27 hours from <laughs> Michigan State. <laughs> oh, it's brutal! It's brutal, Scott. It's uh, from Michigan State, uh, and we arrived into Chicago.
0: All right. So I was going to say the question I asked you before, and again, it really does seem relevant, especially with that. Any point you thought, you know, there's got to be an easier way to raise awareness for people and to do something like I could, I could swim my pool five or six times and say it's a busy day.
6: Yeah, I think, um, to raise awareness and to raise the amount of money that's needed. Um, it has to be something big. Um, so no, it's, um, it's definitely big and it's taken its toll on me. I'm exhausted.
0: I'm sure. I am sure.
6: It's been, you know, um, four, well, f- this week will be five Great Lakes in, in 10 weeks. It's, um, it's been, uh, a lot, but, um, but it's, it's near the end and, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the finish line now. Okay. Now for the people who don't know it,
0: many people will have followed this story or have heard us talk before or Rick and you talk or whomever. So a lot of people will know who you are. Some won't. You're not just. And I want to make sure I ask this in a sensitive way. You're not just a guy who is paddling across the Great Lakes. You are, you, you have had some struggles physically. You have a disability that makes this even more difficult.
6: Yeah. So I do this with um, Ramsey Hunt syndrome. Um, So it's a chronic neurological condition. uh, Three, it'll be four years in November. Um, But I, I just spend the better part of 2018 learning how to walk again. Um, I was a paddleboarding coach, and and the doctor said that I would never paddleboard again. Um, I couldn't walk from the living room to to my kitchen. Why? Um, then, Why? Uh, what was?
0: What's the symptom? What were the symptoms that would have uh, prevented that potentially?
6: So, so it's a reactivation of your chickenpox virus, and it attacked my ear, attacking my vestibular system. So every so, it, I lost my my sense of balance. Um and and I had to hold on to people to walk. Um which I, I also, chuckle about.
0: Which I chuckle about only because if you're going to not have balance, probably the thing that would cause you the most problems would be standing on a board in the middle of waves in a great lake.
6: Yeah. So it's definitely <laughs> challenging. Um it also presented um Hearing impairments, uh, obstructed my vision and, um, and chronic vertigo. So being on paved surfaces is, is generally usually very okay for me. Um, being on the water is really, really tough. Um, and when, when it's wavy, it can be really, really tough. Um, but, but you just power through. And, um, and I'm, I do half of these standing up and half of them sitting down. Um, I, you know, I, I don't have the, um, the strength to do all of it standing, standing up, but, uh, I'm trying <laughs> now, Mike, I would, okay. So I would guess that. Uh, first of all, the Great Lakes
0: are not you know, completely flat bodies of water. There are waves. You've got to deal with stuff. Have there been times that you have been dumped? Have you had to jump back on the board because the waves have knocked you
6: off? So the waves have been... Um, I was very lucky with Lake Superior. We caught a big break with that one. It was like glass the entire way. Wow. Um, Lake Michigan uh, was really rough. Um, there were. I was going through shipping channels and thousands... You know, nine hundred foot, one thousand foot freighters were going by us, generating huge wakes. Yeah. Um, and then you've got the wind. Like Lake Huron and Lake Michigan were equally um were equally rough with me. Um I had a medical emergency on Lake Huron. Um, my foot got waterlogged and I had to do the last fourteen hours sitting down. Um, I couldn't stand on it and I was carried off the beach by paramedics when I got to the other side. Um but, but hopefully, hopefully Lake Lake Ontario into Toronto is uh, is is good, and um, the weather is looking good right now. So, so we'll start that on Friday at four o'clock, and it will arrive into the Toronto Harbour Front into HTO Park um, on Saturday around noon, and and hopefully the weather's good overnight.
0: Yeah, so you you get to have your own Marilyn Bell moment. I yeah uh, i guess yes <laughs> sort of sort of so so for someone then who has balance issues because of what you face and again going back to the wakes and the waves and everything else how i know you said you have to sit down sometimes but even when you're standing how do you maintain your balance
6: um so i usually crouch my knees down um so so that i'm closer to the board so that if i fall like if my knees are bent, uh, rather than if if they're fully upwards, um, I I'm closer to the board. So if I fall, I fall on the board, um, and I can recover more quickly. Um, that puts more strain on your thigh. That's harder on your legs. Yeah, but my thighs are really strong at this point.
0: I would I would think so. I would think everything is really strong at this point. Paddling for twenty one straight hours.
6: Yeah, no, it's. Um, you learn a lot about yourself when you're, when you're on these things, what your body can go through. Um, they're constantly, I'm consuming, I'm consuming 30 to 35 liters of water every time I do these crossings. Um, I'm going to the bathroom while I'm paddle boarding every 10 minutes. Um, my first crossing so people don't want to
0: swim behind you is what you're saying no absolutely not
6: (laughs) no they want to burn those wetsuits as soon as i get to land um but no the like the lake erie crossing in the very beginning you know i i'd get on i'd get into the water and i'd tell my team don't look at me don't talk to me i was going to the bathroom now they're, they're constantly asking me if I'm going to the bathroom and I'm like, yeah, I'm going right now. And like, it's like, you learn a lot about yourself through these things. There's, there's no dignity left.
0: There's no dignity left. Maybe. Well, there will be though. When you finish, there's a lot of dignity for this, but hey, just before we go, cause we we're short on time when you're paddling for 21 hours, I, I can't imagine that you can have a conversation going on with your crew the whole time. What do you think about
6: so, so I actually do, I talk to them mostly at night in the, in the overnight hours, not so much during the daylight. Um, but in the overnight hours, I do, um, and that's a rule that we kind of establish just to keep me alert and to keep me as safe as possible. Um, because I'm, I'm dozing off sometimes. <laughs> um, but, but no, I, I often think about, you know, why the why, why I'm doing this. I'm doing this, um, to put mental health to raise money to put mental health programs in schools for kids i'm i'm thinking about the journey i'm thinking about you know you know how how what what it used to be like and what it's like now and i'm also just thinking about you know how amazing it is to be out there again um and doing something that you know i was told that i couldn't do well it's an amazing
0: story and uh, mike has promised that once he finishes the great lakes he will do the pacific ocean next i think is that what you said right
6: Oh, yeah, in Hudson's
0: Bay. uh, Let's stick with the Great Lakes for now and get that one. Uh, Lake Ontario, and I'm joking about Pacific Ocean. I think think I'm joking. Um, (laughs) Mike, good luck this weekend, and uh, we'll be, I'm sure, hearing about your success when you're done. Thanks
6: for taking some time. Thanks very much, Scott.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We have medical assistance in dying, but it's a
0: controversial topic for a lot of people. Largely... For many people, it's because of the expansion of it. It was originally simply for people who were facing a terminal illness, then it expanded to those who were suffering, then it is expanding to now mental health. And that is causing some people some consternation. Many people or a number of people who advocate for the disabled community are saying they are concerned about where this might go. Well, Global News has learned about a concerning case involving a veteran who was inappropriately offered medical assistance in dying by a federal government employee working for Veterans Canada. Our Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson is breaking the story this morning. She joins us. Mercedes, thanks for this today. Hi, thanks for having me. What? So we have what, someone who is a disabled veteran and was, did they ask for this or were they told you might want to consider this? What's the story?
7: So this is uh, a combat veteran who served Canada overseas um, in some pretty significant combat. Uh, as a result, this individual sustained post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injuries, both of which have been medically diagnosed. And sources tell us, um, and we, we have confirmed this through multiple sources and through the Department itself uh, of Veterans Affairs, that while this veteran was on a call with his vac service agent who's the bureaucrat who is supposed to help veterans navigate the system because it can be super complicated and figure out their options he was looking for treatment for his tbi and ptsd and suddenly out of the blue he gets offered medically assisted dying um, which our sources say was a tremendous shock to his system Uh, he was looking for treatment to get better he was not looking in any way to end his life and this was just offered Out of the blue. That is causing extreme concern in the veterans community because there are a lot of veterans who are vulnerable. There are veterans with mental health issues. There are veterans um, whose mental health issues include suicidal ideation, and that has to be approached very carefully when you're talking about medically assisted dying, which is why it is only ever supposed to be discussed between a primary care provider like a psychiatrist or their medical doctor um and the veteran not a bureaucrat on the phone who is suddenly offering this out of nowhere so there is concern about how many veterans this may have happened with. There is concern that it could keep happening. uh, And that's in part why we've heard from the veterans community on this story who want it raised and want Canadians to know um, that this has happened in this particular case. And we don't know how many other cases it may have happened in with this particular individual or others from back because when we asked the government, um, they did not answer that question that we put to them.
0: But this really is, goes to the crux anyway, in the debate that's going on about this, this is exactly what some of the people who are critics are saying they are concerned about. Is it not that those who are weaker or those who are in a position like this, suddenly it could be something that is pushed rather than simply just there for them? That's that's the concern anyway.
7: I, I think that's part of the concern. Absolutely, in this case, uh, the concern, though, also is that it's being offered by someone who is simply unqualified to even sure. be discussing this um, or or to be raising it. Um, so certainly, the, and uh, you know, I've covered made extensively in this job. And as you say, there are a lot of advocates who are concerned. Um, and the sort of extra layer in concern in this case is this, this wasn't someone who was talking to their doctor. They were talking to a bureaucrat who's unqualified to be making these kinds of offers, and back told us in a statement that this isn't even a service VAC is supposed to be offering. Um, they can help a veteran to access those resources, but it's never supposed to be presented to somebody as, hey, I know you're looking for treatment for your traumatic brain injury, but <laughs> yeah. have you considered assisted death? And to your point that there is concern, um, especially given the, the num- amount of anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, that if that is being discussed by a veteran, it, it's being discussed by somebody um, who's actually supposed to be bringing that up and not someone who just kind of brings it up out of the blue. in it, You know, there's obviously checks and balances on made before it goes through in this country, but the concern is not just that the veteran perhaps goes through with it when they, they otherwise may not. The concern is just the destabilizing effect as well that that has on a veteran who has PTSD, who feels, uh, according to multiple sources I've talked to, like his country has abandoned him, and then... The, the hit that that takes to morale of, of not just being offered um, help that this individual is looking for, but being offered death instead uh, could have a really, really negative effect on that person's mental health. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I'm hearing from a lot of the veterans.
0: Absolutely. So what happens from here? I mean, it, does someone from any kind of government agency or office, does, does anything happen or do they just tell this person who was the worker, don't do this again and slap on the wrist and, you know, whatever it, where does it go?
7: Yeah, great question. So Veterans Affairs told us that this person should have never made the offer, um, or as they said, it was discussed. They're very careful with their wording that it was inappropriately discussed, and that they deeply regret the harm that they recognize this has caused to this veteran and to this veteran's family. Uh, because as you know, when you spin someone out, it affects the whole family and support system around them. Uh, they said that there there has been an investigation and there will be administrative action taken, but they wouldn't spell out anything about that citing privacy rules, um, wouldn't tell us what's going to happen to this individual uh, or whether they're aware of other cases of this individual making a similar offer or raising this issue with other veterans. Um, so I think there's still a lot of questions here about uh, how addressing this looks like and certainly a lot of vets who want to know that things are being done to assure that this is not systemic or that this has not happened to multiple veterans um, who, who have been harmed by it.
0: That is uh, Ottawa Bureau Chief for Global News, Mercedes Stevenson. Mercedes, thanks for the time today. Uh, Great job on this. Really
1: appreciate your time.